All right. Well, goddamn, here we are. After making that big announcement about how I was going to be recording lots of Romas, this is the first one I've had time to do. Uh, not just time, but space. The thing about travel is it's hard to find a quiet space where you're not moving. There are no fucking sirens going off. You're not in the back of a truck. Anyway, I am in, where am I? Copangan, I think it's pronounced. It's on the other side of the Isthmus of Thailand. That's a weird-ass word. S-T-H. It seems like S and T-H should not go together. There's also that thing, like, when elephants are in, like, their breeding season, it's called musth. Uh, who the fuck came up with these words could have done a better job anyway on the other side of the isthmus in the gulf of thailand as opposed to the andaman sea which is where we were when we were in kopayam um i think i released the last podcast with rachel krantz i think i recorded that in krabi um on uh rayleigh beach which is an interesting place. Um, yeah, Thailand. I got a lot of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about Whoopi Goldberg. I want to talk about Joe Rogan. I want to talk about lies. Um, I think those are the main topics that I want to talk about today. Um, okay, lies. So we were in Krabi. We're walking in, in where we were, Rayleigh Beach. There's like uh, east and west, and there's a short walk between them. And west is where you go to watch the sunset, and east is where we were staying. So we're walking uh, down this sort of little alley, and we hear somebody scream up ahead of us. And it, you know, you hear someone scream. It wasn't like a blood, blood curdling scream. I'm sorry, I just popped there. Um, I did a pee, and I'm not holding the mic directly in front of my mouth, but still, I got that pop. I could hear it. Anyway, uh, yeah, we heard this scream, and uh, we just thought it was someone playing, and we sort of chuckled or whatever, and we kept walking. And then we come around the corner, and there's this guy on the ground, and a, like a tuk-tuk, like a golf cart sort of thing stopped. And it looked like... like he'd been hit by the golf cart and like what the hell and we were the first people on the scene and the guy was shaking he was clearly in shock and um what had happened is he was on a skateboard and he was coming around this corner at the same time this golf cart was coming and one or both of them were going too fast and boom and when he hit it he reached out and grabbed onto um like the edge near the, the corner where the windshield would be if there were a windshield and it was sharp jagged metal and so he sliced deep into his hand into his fingers and um anyway so he was sitting there he was bleeding pretty bad he's like oh my god oh my god i use my fingers for everything i can't live without my fingers he's like crying he's really upset and uh, and I said to him, okay, look, you're going to be okay. You just need to, uh, you know, where is there a doctor here? And, and he said, no, the nearest doctor, you have to get a boat and go to this place. And 
And I'm like, okay, like, you got to get a boat. You got to, like, let's go. Let's go to the beach. We'll get you a boat. You have money. Like, I don't have no money. I'll pay for the boat. Let's just go. Go now, now. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. I need to go and do this first and do that. And uh, I'll just uh, wrap it. And he wraps it up in this dirty rag. And it's like, dude, like, you need to go to a doctor. You're in the tropics. If this gets infected, you could lose your fingers. The cut was deep. I didn't see how deep. And I'm not a medical doctor, right? But I know enough about first aid. You know, I was once a fucking certified lifeguard and I've done first aid classes, you know, albeit in high school 30, 40 years ago, whatever, but um, I'm familiar with some basic medical procedures. And in this case, this guy needs to have the wound cleaned, disinfected, probably get some stitches, wrapped in clean gauze, not a dirty fucking rag. And he needs to like do that as soon as possible. So, um, but he wasn't listening to me and obviously I'm not in a position where I'm going to grab him by the shoulders and fucking shake him. And he kept saying like, Oh, am I going to be all right? I don't know what to do. And it occurred to me that one very effective way to get him to do what I knew was the right thing would have been to say to him, dude, I'm a fucking surgeon, okay? I do this for a living. Listen to me. You need to do A, B, C. Let's go. I would have been lying. I'm no fucking surgeon. But it would have resulted in him doing what I knew was the right thing for him to do. No question. This is not a judgment call. If you if you slice your fingers down to the bone and you're in the tropics and it's dirty and the thing you sliced it on is rusty and gross and you're sitting there in the dirt wondering what to do, well I got some news for you. I know what to do. Medical attention ASAP. Fucking get on it. Clean the wound, disinfect the wound, close the wound bandage the wound that's those are the steps now some medical doctors listening to this i don't know maybe you'll tell me i'm full of shit but i think that's pretty good advice so anyway the point was later i was thinking like it's an ethical conundrum right do you is it okay to lie to someone to get them to do the thing that you know is best for them especially if they're in some sort of a compromised position Like this guy was in shock. This guy, you know, for obvious reasons, wasn't thinking clearly. So what he was desperate for was for someone to say to him, I know, don't worry. I know what to do. You'll be okay. Um, And I felt like I could offer that information, but not with the stethoscope around my neck that would make him listen to me that would calm him down and make him think, oh, maybe I really will be okay if I listen to this guy. Anyway, it it feels like this particular ethical dilemma is very relevant to our current situation because I, I feel like a lot of us, myself included, are looking at some of the things that are going on politically with COVID, um, you know, maybe in some relationship 
scenarios. And we're feeling like I know more about this than you do. So trust me, here's what you should do. And it's maybe I know more about this because I'm older than you and I've got more experience in this area. Maybe it's because I've studied it more like a doctor or, um, you know, an epidemiologist or someone who's very conversant in in viruses and so on. Um, Maybe it's just because I've squandered so much of my fucking time reading studies and papers and opinion pieces and I feel like I'm more well-versed than most people. And when I say I, I mean any of us, whoever's doing the thinking here. That we feel like we're in a position to tell other people what's best for them. And that, even if it comes from a place of, of good intentions, as in my example here, um, where clearly, you know, I wasn't trying to like charge him money for my medical advice. I wasn't trying to, you know, get sexual favors or, or ego gratification. The guy doesn't know me. I don't know him. I'll never see him again. I don't have any fucking bad intentions here. I just want the guy to be okay. Um, but even in those situations, it does raise significant ethical questions do we have a right to tell other people what to do and if so when and which people and how um you know people you people listening to this who are parents you must deal with this all the time right i mean is it possible to be a parent without lying to your kids at some point uh, Santa Claus. What's up with Santa Claus? I believed in Santa Claus when I was a kid. And I don't blame my parents for misrepresenting the reality of Christmas to me, but they definitely fucking lied, right? I mean, they weren't doing it. They were doing it actually to deflect credit from themselves, which is kind of a benevolent thing when you think about it. Um you know, you would think that the parents' sort of most superficial motivation would be to say, no, I give you that shit, so be a good kid and, you know, stop it. Um, But by making it Santa Claus, there's still a manipulative thing, right? Like Santa knows who's naughty and nice, and so it is a way to manipulate kids into being good. But it's hard to see it as a particularly nefarious lie, But then it's a very short step from Santa Claus to, you know, our good Lord Jesus Christ or, or, you know, Muhammad or, or whomever you, your particular worshiping savior is, uh, your worshiped savior. It's a very short step. I, I have a very good friend who raised his kids in a religion and, and I remember talking to him about it, like, but do you believe, do you really believe the teachings of this religion? Do you really believe so? this and that happened and so and so? And he said, it doesn't matter. It's a belief system that I believe leads to greater happiness and people raised in that belief system tend to be better people. So, huh. Now, if he's right about that, then 
is truth really the highest goal here? Is truth the ideal toward which we should be living? Or is there something higher than truth? Is there effectiveness? Or ironically, we could use the term salvation, right? I could have maybe, maybe I'll go to Krabby one day and see that guy there missing his three fingers. And I'll think, if he had gotten on that boat, like I told him to, maybe he'd still have those fingers. Maybe if I'd said I was a surgeon, he would have gotten on the boat. And maybe my lie would have led to a greater good. The salvation of his fingers. I don't have an answer for this. It's just a question. It's just something I've been thinking about. And it's certainly not the first time I thought about it. But that situation with the, the guy raised it anew. And it seemed like it's a relevant thing to be thinking about. Um, in these days of, you know, people saying, trust me, you know, Trump is an evil piece of shit or trust me, you know, we're much better off with Biden. Bernie never would have won or, you know, trust me, Putin is uh, the enemy and, you know, he's trying to invade the Ukraine because... Uh, you know, he's just an evil fuck, not because he's nervous about having Western missiles on his border pointed at his country. Um, yeah, how would we react if Russian missiles were down in Matamoros, Mexico? Probably not real well, judging by the way things have worked out in history. It's, it's amazing how hypocritical the United States is in global stuff. Like we declare openly the Monroe Doctrine. The Western Hemisphere is ours. Stay the fuck out. Russian sent some, uh, Soviet sent some missiles to Cuba. We almost blow up the whole fucking world to make them get those missiles out of Cuba because they're too close to America. But we can have missiles in Turkey. We can have missiles wherever we want right around the border of russia anyway that that's a topic i did not plan to talk about um so having covered lies um yeah is there ever i mean another one of these lies is like did fauci lie did fauci the one lie that that anti-fauci people keep raising is or the main one, I shouldn't say the one, the one, there are some different accusations, but the main one I keep hearing is that at the beginning of the pandemic, he said, uh, don't worry about masks. Uh, we don't think masks are really a big deal. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, oh my God, everybody should wear masks. And at one point he hinted that maybe the reason he said that and I think it was a, a nuanced multi-variant kind of situation as almost all situations are but he did seem to admit that one reason that he said masks don't matter is that if everyone went out and tried to buy masks there would be a panic because there weren't enough masks there weren't even enough masks for healthcare workers and so they needed to make sure healthcare workers were taken care of because they were the most exposed to the virus and they were the most necessary to dealing with this as this mushroomed as they knew it would. And so if he told that lie intentionally, he was doing it to buy some time for manufacturers of 
mass to ramp up production so that everybody could uh, get through this. And, you know, a lot of people point to that and say that son of a bitch is a liar. And maybe he is. I mean, maybe he did intentionally tell that lie. But again, if he did, can we, should we fault him for that? Is it so absolute that you can say, aha, you lied, therefore you're a liar, therefore you're a terrible person, therefore you have no credibility, therefore, you know, fuck off, you're on the other side, you're, you're evil. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, if someone was there at the scene and they heard me say to this guy, hey, trust me, I'm a doctor, here's what you need to do, da-da-da-da-da, and then later... They said to me, so what kind of doctor are you? And I said, well, actually, I'm a psychologist. I, I just said that to because the guy needed to hear some assuredness and, and uh, he was more likely to do the right thing if I said that. And then that person's like, oh, you're a liar. You're a piece of shit. You're evil. Is that is that right? Is that how we do these things? I just feel like the world is getting so complicated there's so many voices, so many perspectives that are clamoring for our attention that we're overwhelmed. And when the human mind is overwhelmed, it seeks shortcuts and simplifications. And, you know, we filter out so much of our perceptions so that when you take some mushrooms or some acid or some MDMA or any of these other substances that you know what's the the line from Blake that uh, open wide the doors of perception you notice how much you have been ignoring you notice how much of what's constantly going on around you you just ignore and that's part of being alive right like it's what you leave out that creates the painting it's it's what you leave out that creates the book it's what you leave out that creates the poem and it's what you leave out that creates consciousness and being so overwhelmed with opinions and perspectives and you know competing narratives i think we are seeking we're we're seeking shortcuts and trying to figure out what to leave out and i fear that a lot of what we're leaving out is an appreciation for nuance and how opposing things can be true at the same time it's wrong to lie but sometimes it's necessary to lie sometimes it's even right to lie choosing when and where that's subtle and nuanced and difficult. And um, it feels like fewer and fewer of us have the bandwidth to deal with that kind of a thing. Which leads us to Joe Rogan. Uh, this is a, a rapidly developing story. So by the time you hear this, it may have moved to another level. But at the moment, what's happened um, is that... Uh, Neil Young and uh, Joni Mitchell and some other 
artists pulled their music off Spotify to protest Rogan's uh, spreading of disinformation about COVID. And uh, then Rogan replied with an Instagram um, video, which I thought was classic Rogan, really sincere and thoughtful and unscripted and um, friendly where he said, you know, look, I could have done a better job. I could have scheduled things differently to have, you know, more mainstream voices on after I had on these two um, controversial doctors talking about COVID with unconventional views. Um, And, uh, you know, I'll try to do better in the future. And, you know, just I I love Neil Young. And he told a story about being at a Neil Young concert. Um, anyway, I thought that was awesome. And I kind of felt like, okay, this is going to die down now and everything will be cool. And then I woke up this morning to news that Joe had dropped another video apologizing for using the N word, um, repeatedly over the years and telling a story about going to see planet of the apes and ending up in an all black neighborhood in Philadelphia. And he seemed to make some sort of like, you know, we were in Africa and equating that with planet of the apes somehow. Um, yeah, this is the danger of doing something like a podcast, especially where you're getting high and drunk and just hanging out, chatting with friends. It's a difficult situation because the whole point of Joe's podcast was to make it as authentic a representation of what it's like to hang out with Joe and, you know, Eddie Bravo or or Joey Diaz or, you know, whatever, his buddies, uh, Red Band and um, all these dudes what it's like to just chill with these guys and um so it's unscripted it's unedited it it's live it's uh you know i mean he started out like so many episodes like you know hello my freak bitches like i mean obviously this is not a politically correct sensitive uh you know safe space kind of podcast and yet now because he took that sweet sweet spotify money he's in this weird position of being judged as if he were a news network the you know joe rogan experience news network um j-r-e-n-n it's crazy like, he never claimed to be a source of news. He's just a fucking dude having conversations. And so it it feels deeply unfair that he's being held to standards that he never aspired to or claimed to um, to even respect or, or, or want for himself. And... Um, He's kind of, he's in a tough spot now because they're going to go back and look, you know, people who want his scalp are going to go back and they're going to find any number of things 
to be offended by. I mean, he's got over a thousand fucking episodes. And strangely, they pulled a hundred and I think it was 117 episodes down from Spotify last night. One of them was with me, but it was if I had to think of all the episodes I've been on Rogan, it's the one that I would think has the least chance of offending anyone. It's the one where I brought Stanley Krippner down to L.A. and the three, you know, Joe wanted to meet Stanley and the three of us hung out and. I mean, Stanley was 85 or 83 or something at the time. Nobody was throwing around racial epithets or, you know, telling any crazy stories about, you know, anything that could possibly be offensive. I have no idea why they took that one down. I haven't listened to it in a long time, so I guess it's possible that some weird shit was said. But Stanley's like one of the sweetest, most careful you know, non-offending people I've ever met. So I don't know how there could have been anything on that episode that was, um, you know, off color, but there you go. I'm sure they'll end up pulling down the rest of the episodes I was on, especially the one where I told the story about the cat and the pencil. Um, you know, and then who knows, maybe they'll come looking for me and looking for Duncan and, you know, Brian Redman and Joey Diaz and everybody else and we'll all be canceled because we all said dumb shit uh, at some point and God knows I say dumb shit every time I turn on a microphone but that's the way podcasting is it's not edited it's not publishing a book it's not doing an interview on the BBC it's a totally different medium and um so I don't know. I mean, I definitely, my my bias is pro-Rogan, obviously. He's done a lot for me. He's a good dude. Um, I may have told this story before on the podcast, but this is, when someone asks me what's Rogan like, this is what I think of, okay? Uh, I'd been on the podcast several, bunch of times at this point, and... One day I'm driving down the road in the van and my phone starts going off and it says it's Joe Rogan calling me. Joe Rogan doesn't call me. Joe Rogan might answer one out of five texts that I send him. That's And I don't send him a lot of texts, right? I don't want to bother the guy. The most I'll do is, you know, I'll, I'll send him a text saying, hey, I had this guy so-and-so on my podcast recently. He's awesome. If you want to get him on yours i'd be happy to introduce you occasionally he'll say be like fuck yeah put me in touch and other times he just doesn't answer fair enough the guy probably gets a hundred text messages a day um and those are just from like close friends right like the public doesn't have his fucking phone number um anyway my phone goes off it's rogan calling i answer the phone Joe, like, hey, Chris, listen, uh, sorry to bother you. Can you talk? Like, yeah. He says, okay, uh, yesterday I had uh, Brett and uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather, whatever her name is, his wife, um, on my podcast. And, uh, you know, they're evolutionary biologists and they're working on a book about, I think the book was like Hunter Gathers in the 
guide to the 21st century or something like that. Um, and I, I mentioned Sex of Dawn and they fucking trashed it. And, um, and I didn't know how to defend you. And I um, was just kind of in shock because I thought that they liked it and I thought everyone kind of like respected it and they really just um, attacked you personally and, um, and attacked the, the, the sort of uh, scientific credibility of the book. And I just sat there like an idiot and didn't stand up for you. And I couldn't think clearly about your points in the book. And so I didn't really have anything to say and I just let it go. And then the conversation moved on and I left it there and dude, I feel like I feel terrible. I, I should have, I should have done something and I just feel really terrible about this. And first of all, Joe doesn't need me for anything, right? He wasn't doing this because he wanted to borrow money from me or, you know, have me like connect him with my agent or whatever. Joe doesn't need me for anything. There's no motivation. There's no agenda that would explain this behavior other than Joe is a good fucking dude who didn't want me to think that he would let someone insult me and not defend me. And when he didn't defend me, he felt badly. And of course, I didn't expect him to defend me. I don't give a shit if people talk shit about sex at dawn especially a married couple who probably are coming from you know <laughs> motivated by all sorts of stuff that we'll never know about um i'd be happy to you know speak with these people directly but the fact that they i mean i think this was the interview where like i think brett said you know he wrote that book to get laid and it was just like, okay, well, you know, you're not a serious person. You think somebody writes a book in order to get laid. You're, you have no idea. Um, but obviously, people have problems with the book. People have problems with some of the arguments we made, some of the data we cited, whatever. That's fine. That's science. That's, that's what happens when you publish that kind of a book. People disagree. Some people agree. Whatever. That's all fair game. And I've got no problem with that. And I don't feel like Joe who you know may have read the book seven or eight or nine years before this conversation happened has any responsibility to be able to pull up the arguments from a book that he read so long ago that isn't really you know it's not his his world I mean if I if I was had some UFC fighter on and he said you know Joe Rogan doesn't know shit about UFC I'd be like well I don't know dude I think he does but but I don't know. And if the guy starts saying, you know, he, like, in the fight with, uh, you know, Adesanya, he said that this was a Camaro and actually it was a back blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not qualified to, to say if that's true or not. I don't fucking know. So I would probably just sit there like Joe did with my mouth open, like, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know what to say. I don't blame him for that at all. And the only reason I, I mention any of this is, like, that's my insight into what kind of person this is. And Joe and I have had some disagreements over the years. We've had some pretty serious disagreements. We've had like 
disagreements where I've had to like say to him, Hey dude, I'm not a Joe fan. Okay. I'm, I'm a person. Don't, don't talk to me as if I'm one of your fans. I didn't even know who the fuck you were until recently. And he took that and he heard me and our friendship continued but it definitely got to a point where both of us were like uh what the fuck did you just say and we came back from that and uh it was a misunderstanding i'm not going to get into the details of that but the reason i mention it is like we've been there okay we've been there. it's that kind of i'm not saying he's one of my best friends or i'm one of his best friends uh probably 75 percent of the time we spent together has been in front of microphones so that's on the public record um but i am saying i've got some insights into his character and he's a good dude having said that i think alex jones is a fucking toxic piece of shit and the fact that joe had him on his podcast a bunch of times made me very uncomfortable one time i was the guest directly after alex jones and uh I went in to the studio and uh, Joe's like, yeah, what's up, man? How you doing? I was like, yeah, good. So you had Alex Jones on yesterday. I think this was the one where he was like, they were drinking and smoking cigars and Alex Jones started screaming about like intergalactic child molesters and stuff. And... Um, yeah, and, and I said, uh, yeah, so I so saw you had Alex Jones on yesterday, and Joe's like, yeah, that guy's hilarious. Like, people don't understand why I like hanging out with him. He's just so fucking funny and crazy. And I said, this is before the mics turned on. This is where we're sort of getting set up in the studio. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's pretty amusing, but, like, you know, the whole Sandy Hook denial thing is just uh, too much for me. And Joe said, what do you mean? I said, well, he, you know, he fucking denies that Sandy Hook happened. And he claims that all these parents who are grieving their murdered children are fucking crisis actors. And Joe just stopped what he was doing. He looked at me and he's like, really? He said that? I said, yeah, dude. He's like, oh, hmm. And then we went on now I don't know if that's a story where you say Joe should have known that Joe should have done some more research on the guy because it wasn't the first time he'd been on um, and I believe he had him on again after that so I don't think that particularly changed things but I don't know I haven't listened to those episodes maybe Joe called him on that um and if Joe's perspective is like, um, I don't want to de-platform him. I want to have him on and talk about this. Maybe he did that. And if that's his perspective, uh, I agree with it. Um, the question now is like, did Joe shoot himself in the foot by taking that Spotify money? And I'm guessing that Joe is savvy enough that his lawyers knew this was going to come up. They knew it. How could you not know that at some point Joe was going to piss somebody off and they were going to go digging through the archives and find all kinds of crazy shit that he said before? 
So I imagine that in the contract that he signed with Spotify was some kind of a clause that says that if Spotify terminates the contract, Joe gets a massive payout. I'm sure he didn't get $100 million up front. It's spread out over time. But if they terminate it, he's going to take a big pile of money and go back to YouTube or go to some new platform that he and Elon Musk will put together. Um, Whatever. Joe will be fine financially. But I do wonder. It's like the dude's making so much money. At what point is is it enough and this is what we talked about last time i was on his show and i was trying to say to him like dude you got so much money why do i didn't say this explicitly but you know if you listen to the conversation this is what we were talking about i was like why do you take ads why are you shilling for some fucking mattress company or whatever the fuck it is when you're making you know, at that point, he's probably making $20, 30000000 million a year from all his UFC shit and all this other stuff. Why degrade yourself with that? Uh, I don't understand it. I was just listening to Peter Atia's podcast the other day, The Drive with Peter Atia. He's a medical doctor, and he um, had a couple of three uh, really highly qualified uh, physicians on, uh, one of whom was an epidemiologist, I think, who teaches at Stanford, the others at Johns Hopkins, and um, uh, I forget their names. Um, Z Dog, I think, is one of them. And, and there was a woman who teaches at UCSF who's an HIV doctor, studies virology. Fantastic conversation about COVID and, and masks and kids and vaccines and all this stuff. Uh, really highly recommended. Um, but it just struck me as so strange that, you know, here's Peter Atia who's making a shit ton of money, who's still doing ads and putting stuff behind a paywall and like making the podcast be an income generator. Um, I don't get it. I don't know. Um, anyway, enough about that. I've been rambling about that for long enough that's my feeling about joe i think he he probably shouldn't have taken the spotify money but he did so what are you gonna do um all right whoopi goldberg i don't get it this whole conversation about race is so fucking confusing to me because on the one side not side that's a weird way to uh, an unhelpful way to frame it you've got people saying Race is a an invention. Race is not a real thing. And I tend to agree with that 90%. It's true. There, there's more genetic variation in people from Africa than there is in all the other people in the world put together. That's because people have been in Africa much, much, much longer than they've been in Mongolia or Alaska or Nicaragua. Um, so the, the mixing has been the churning, the genetic churning has been happening in Africa for, since the dawn of humanity, whenever you want to locate that, uh, 300,000 years ago is a, is a good place to start. 
um, somewhat arbitrary, but that's where we tend to look at it now. Homo sapiens, you know, anatomically modern Homo sapiens around 300,000 years ago until people started leaving Africa. And there's a lot of debate around this, but anywhere from 40 to 60,000 years ago seems to be the consensus at this point that humans started emigrating out of Africa and spreading around in different ways at different times. And then they mixed. And um, so it's a complicated picture, obviously. But the point is that race as we as understood today is a very artificial thing you you just say oh black people are black well okay but someone born and raised in ethiopia is very different from someone born and raised in angola uh, assuming that their ancestors come from that area Um, they look different they're sort of typical body uh, characteristics are different they probably respond differently to different um, foods to different medications and so on Um, so there's very little uniformity among what we call black people Uh, you've got black people people with black skin who live in southern india and in tamil nadu in uh, sri lanka they're as black as anybody from africa but they're racially genetically totally different um so it's all it's a mess right and it doesn't really make any sense and and people have like been considered white and then no longer considered white or they used to not be considered white and now they are like the irish the british considered the irish to be an inferior race and so when the british invaded ireland and enslaved irish people and starved them to death and exploited them in all sorts of different ways they justified it by saying they're an inferior race just like they justified other aspects of colonialism with dark-skinned people who are inferior just like the irish were inferior slavs why are they called slavs because they were slaves because they were considered the people from the slavic areas were considered legitimate as slaves you could take them as slaves because they were inferior they're white right you'd have a hard time distinguishing someone from a slavic background uh from someone with a upper class british background just by looking at them so these things are very arbitrary and very weird and always changing and you know who who's white who's not white who's black who's not black i don't know who's asian i mean you know we say oh they're asian as if there's some uniform definition of that but you've got what koreans and and pakistanis are both asian and we're calling them the same race like it makes no sense none of this shit makes any sense so against that context within that context Whoopi Goldberg on The View was having a discussion. They were talking about this book, uh, Mouse, I think it's called, which is being banned in Kentucky or some fucking place. Um, It's about the Holocaust and it's like a cartoon book, I guess. I've never read it. But um, so they're talking about the Holocaust and Whoopi says, well, I don't think the Holocaust was about race. It was about man's inhumanity to man. And there was some pushback on that. And um, she said, how can it be about race if it was white people 
killing other white people, meaning the Germans killing the Jews, right, who are both white. And she got fucking destroyed for this. So she's on a two-week suspension. The, the, the principal of ABC or whatever network, NBC, um, I sent her to detention for two weeks where she's going to reflect on the harm she's done by daring to say that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And the explanations that I've read for the outrage are that Jewish, some Jewish people said, you crazy bitch, of course it was about race because Hitler considered us to be an inferior race. Hitler considered Jews to be an inferior race. By the way, just as he considered the French to be an inferior race and the Spanish and the Greeks and the Italians and everybody else who wasn't Aryan, which strangely he wasn't Aryan, but you know, don't read between the lines. So Hitler, like these tall, blonde, you know, Germanic fucking Ubermen were the superior race and everybody else was a piece of shit that needed to be eliminated. And the Jews were the first to go. Now, so Hitler considered the Jews to be non-white. But today, in America, where Whoopi Goldberg was born and raised, Jews are considered to be totally white. I don't know anyone who would say, you know, you got your white people and then you got your Jews. Like, well, Jews are definitely part of the white category right i mean because it's about skin color and they're white they've got white skin i mean a lot of them are brown but so are italians and you know the irish are fucking pink and they're considered to be white so so she didn't recognize the jews as a separate race from the germans she considered them both to be white and she's a bad person for that, apparently, according to the general consensus. And she needs to be punished for not recognizing that, even though the only person who was saying that the Jews were a separate race was fucking Hitler. So she's bad for not accepting Hitler's, for not following Hitler's lead on what qualifies as race and what doesn't. It's so fucking confusing. Um, so I did a little research, and I, I found this... Um, I think this was in the New York Times. Uh, I forget his name, but he's a, a columnist who's black. I mean, he's got black skin. I guess he's black. I don't know. Um, and he quotes uh, Barbara and Karen Fields, who are scholars who write about race. And this is their definition of race. Okay. Quote, race is not an idea, but an ideology. So that's already confusing because ideology is a, as I understand, it, it's a system of thought based upon an idea. So can you have an ideology that isn't based on an idea? I don't know, but that's what they say. So race is not an idea, but an ideology. It came into existence at a discernible historical moment for rationally, no, sorry, rationally understandable historical reasons. 
and is subject to change for similar reasons. Hmm. Okay, so race came into existence at a discernible historical moment. I don't know if they name that moment. Uh, for rationally understandable historical reasons and is subject to change for similar reasons. And I believe what they're referring to there is colonialism. So when the, you know, the explorers, the British, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, were sailing around the world and they came to places that they wanted to plunder it made it easier for them to say oh look at these people they're not really people they're some other kind of thing somewhere between animals and people we are people they are something else and so therefore just as we have the right to treat animals however we want um and you know destroy them for their own good we have the right to treat these creatures however we want and there was a a very famous example of this when um uh Cristobal de las Casas who was a Jesuit um priest who lived in what is now Chiapas uh, and there's a town beautiful town named after him San uh, Cristobal uh San Cristobal de las Casas, he, he became a saint after he died, um, where he was, he was complaining, I wrote about this in Civilized to Death, he was complaining to the Vatican about the horrible treatment that the Indians were receiving from the Spaniards. And so they, came, they brought him back to Spain and uh, staged a debate between him and another Jesuit scholar named um, Sepulveda, I think the debates were held in Valladolid in Spain. And the subject of the debate was, are Indians human beings? And if, and therefore, are they uh, deserving to be treated with the dignity afforded to human beings within the Christian, you know, world? Um, and they debated this for a few days and... Uh, de las Casas won the debate and the Vatican decreed that yes in fact the Indians are human beings and deserve to be treated as such and then the raping and pillaging just continued uh, as it is anyway so back to race uh, you know I, I think that's the historical moment that they're talking about where race became very useful in extracting wealth and denying the rights of people that were encountered in colonialism because it uh, uh, it made it easier to just get on with the work at hand of ripping off everybody and, and doing what you wanted to do. Um, the columnist goes on and says, it's not, it's not necessary for race to be real, for racism to be real. It's only necessary that people believe race to be real when people act on fictions those actions have repercussions even if the underlying belief is false even if the people know the underlying belief they're acting on is false so it's a very confusing situation where we're saying this concept is not real and yet 
behaviors that grow out of the existence of this concept are real and should and can and must be condemned. So I'm a little lost because Whoopi Goldberg certainly thinks race is real. She just thinks race is based upon color and she sees Jews and Germans being the same color and so doesn't see this as fitting into her understanding of racism. That may be true. That I think this gets back to the nuance I talked about at the beginning of this thing. I think she's right. I also think she's wrong. I think that people who say, but Hitler used the concept of race to justify the extermination of Jews, they're right. But does that mean that we should use Hitler's? That we should continue to follow Hitler's definition of race? My family's half German and half Irish. Am I mixed race? Because if we're going to stick with that kind of thing where we say, well, historically there were definitions of race that were used to oppress certain people and we need to maintain the validity of those historical definitions, right? Because Hitler said Jews were a different race. We need to continue to say, yes, that was a racist war 50 years ago or 70 years ago or whatever it was. Um, then how am I not mixed race, being German and Irish? Because race was certainly used to oppress the Irish side of my family. Now, no, I don't think people hold that Irish are a different race anymore, but they did then. And so it's the same thing. It's very confusing. So I guess where I come down on this is, you know, free Whoopi, free Joe, and everybody just calm the fuck down. Not a very earth-shattering conclusion, I guess, but there you have it. All right, there were other things I wanted to talk about, but I feel like I've been talking for a long time. Uh, I'm using this new Tula microphone, so I don't have a timer. I don't really know how long I've been talking. Uh, on my Zoom, there was a a counter, so I could see exactly how long it was. But um, I'm just sitting here in a hammock overlooking the ocean. I don't know if you can hear the waves. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Now, I, I mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, but I'll just end with it here. Uh, those of you who, are, who might be thinking of hitting the road, um, very practical breakdown. We're spending... Uh, 25 bucks a night for a really nice bungalow with air conditioning, uh, king size bed, uh, shower, you know, built everything you'd want, a terrace, a hammock overlooking the ocean, 25 bucks a night. Uh, food for three, four dollars for a plate of stir fried, whatever, chicken, fish, whatever. Um, if you don't drink beer, you can keep your expenses very low because a bottle of beer costs about the same thing as a plate of food. 
So, uh, yeah, if you drink beer, you're definitely that that becomes a major expense. The beer is not as cheap as everything else. Uh, I rent a motorbike. Um, it ranges anywhere from three to six dollars a day for a motorbike to get around. And um, I got travel insurance. I don't know if they would pay if I actually made a claim, but I had to get it. Uh, because of uh, entry into Thailand, they require you to have it. So I got it. It was like $160 for two months for me and my companion. And so, you know, and I'm 59. So I imagine that inflates the cost a little bit. So all in all, you know, if if you're paying if 1500 bucks a month rent and you can have some friends stay at your place and pay that rent you're not really going to pay much more if you're chilling in thailand so that's thailand uh from here we're hoping to go to turkey and then spain in the spring turkey in march spain in april may so i will uh, let you know i think turkey will probably be the same or cheaper than thailand and spain obviously will be significantly more expensive so that's it thank you everybody i really appreciate knowing you're on the other side of this thing i'm grateful for your support however you express it whether it's financially by using my amazon affiliate link on my webpage, or paypal donations or uh, if you're part of the chris crew on my webpage. um where you get free access to ebooks and uh, the subscriber forum and the almost monthly video romas that I put out. I'm running a little behind on that right now, but I will get to it shortly, I promise. Um, or uh, uh, what's it called? The other one? Uh, Patreon. Yeah, Patreon. If you are still subscribed to my Patreon page, I appreciate that as well. Or if you don't, subscribe to any of that shit and you just write a good review or tell your friends or just send me some warm thoughts occasionally however the fuck you do it i appreciate it um i'm gonna play you out with a tune that a guy sent to me his name is nick hornbuckle and uh he's kind of a big deal he's uh he's a banjo player and uh songwriter and he's awesome. He's really, really fucking good. He's Canadian. His uh, last record is called 13 or so. I'm going to play the title track, 13 or so. It was nominated for a Juno, which is uh, like a Grammy in Canada. So that's a pretty big deal. And um, yeah, I really just enjoy his stuff. Uh, there's a, a video of him playing, uh, a whole bunch of videos of him playing, but of this particular tune on YouTube that's great. And um so he sent me the song. It's instrumental. There are no lyrics. So I was listening to the song, really enjoying it. And I was thinking, okay, what is this song about? Like, what am I going to say to people when I play it? Because I definitely want to play it on the podcast. And the song, again, is called 13 or so, the, the number 13 or so. And so I wrote back to him and I said, what is this song about? Is it a reference to some musical aspect of the song? Like, I don't know, time signature or how many bars or some technical thing that I don't understand. Is it a memory of being 13 years old or so? Is it how many people you've loved? 
Is it how many hours of sleep you get at night? (laughs) And I said, it feels nostalgic to me. So I'm guessing it has something to do with being 13. Um, But that could just be my personal response to it. Anyway, he wrote back and he said, it never ceases to amaze me how evocative music can be. It seems that you grok to the vibe pretty close. 13 or so, when did it change for you? When did you realize that childhood was passing away? That there was a big world out there that was at best indifferent? When did nostalgia and the knowledge of possibilities, good and bad, make you slightly more and more conscious of the tick-tock, tick-tock of time passing by? 13 or so. So that's what this song's about coming to consciousness, which we're constantly doing, right? Every fucking day, the old you dies and a new you is born. But sometimes it feels like we kind of, you can feel yourself turning a corner. Um, Yeah, and 13 or so is definitely one of those corners where you're veering out of childhood and veering into something approaching adulthood and you can feel that there are changes happening that you don't quite understand and you're excited about and you're afraid of and you're starting to understand more and more but not yet how much you don't yet understand oh all those things are happening anyway 13 or so nick hornbuckle and uh he's got a website nickhornbuckle.com You can check them out there. I'll include the link on the description for this episode. Thank you for listening. Your attention is your most precious resource. And I never cease to be grateful that you're giving some of it to me. I hope I don't waste it. Thanks. Bye.